Well, I'm glad we didn't give him much time to learn it. Love you, buddy. All right. Jude. Jude tonight. Jude. First chapter, second chapter, third, fourth, fifth. One, one chapter is all there is. Tonight we're going to look at four verses. First four verses tonight. And I anticipate we'll take about three or four weeks and just go through the whole the whole thing is what I anticipate happening. Uh, sometime in the near future, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. Sometime in the near future, we're going to be in 1 and 2 Peter uh, on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the Lord may even allow us to get to Revelation soon. I don't know when that might be, but soon. And uh, so those things are on in my mind, so I ask you to be praying uh, about all that, <clears throat> but for the next uh, few, I think next, maybe next week is, is a youth combined service on Wednesday night, but after that, <clears throat> getting into uh, the next probably three or four uh, sermons out of Jude, and, uh, and then having some more of the guys preach on Wednesday night, probably some more, uh, but, but eventually get into to Peter. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians. So uh, tonight, I'm going to give a little bit of background <clears throat> tonight, and I call it the, the validation, the validation of Jude. We'll look at the, just the introduction, uh, the exhortation, and then the situation uh, that we find ourselves in as we look at this text of Scripture. So uh, tonight, Jude 1 through 4. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called, mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints." For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this time, and Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading, upon the preaching of the word tonight. And Lord God, I surrender myself as best I know how, Lord, to your spirit. And God, may you speak through us the words of life. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight, as we uh, give our thoughts to, uh, not just tonight, but the <clears throat> upcoming weeks in this book of Jude, uh, a little background for kind of get our feet uh, settled on the ground as we anticipate this book. Uh, but Jude is uh, probably an overlooked and maybe an offered, often avoided book. Uh, it's a very in-your-face, straightforward uh, sort of book. And uh, you've probably not heard that many sermons out of Jude in your life, no matter how old you are, would be my guess. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, sometimes we as preachers don't know exactly what to do with it. Uh, but our, our job is simply to preach it. That's all, that's all I know. It's our job as preachers to preach 
of this book and that it's in this book for a reason and that it is, much, it is as much inspired uh, as any other book there is uh, in the Bible. Uh, but Jude, that it is really in a nutshell, that it is about recognizing and rejecting falsehood and those who preach a falsehood. And so it, with that being said, it's about us knowing and accepting truth as well. Uh, so those two things, that we reject falsehood and that we accept truth. Uh, I believe MacArthur said it correctly. He said, although God's people sometimes forget the importance of truth, Satan never does. You see that Satan, that he is always in the business of twisting truth, of distorting truth, of even hiding truth or changing what we perceive uh, to be truth. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, that Satan, that he was a liar even back in the Garden of Eden. And that's what we see that brought, brought us uh, to the place that we are now. And as I thought about that today, as I was pinning those words, that it goes back further even than the Garden of Eden. Because as you think back in the fall of Satan, that he took one-third of the angels with him. So not only did Satan line the garden, but he deceived that third part of the angels into believing that he had a good thing going. So it's always been, even from the fall, that it's always been Satan's method to lie and to distort what truth is. Therefore, you and I, that we must constantly, we must always be on guard in our life against falsehood, and it should also encourage us to always be pursuing and to be taking in truth into our life is a constant part of our diet. Now, he is interested in, in, in you know, just falsehoods in general, but I think more specifically that you and I must understand that he is, is all about doing all that he can uh, to uh, mess up God's most uh, precious prize, and that is his church. That he's in the business of messing up and lying to, and, and really pervading uh, the life of the church, and messing it up. So, yes, he's good at working in government. Yes, he's good in working in nightclubs. Yes, he's good in working in abortion clinics. He's good in working in dark alleys. But make no mistake about it, his favorite place is in the church. To tell lies and to make up distortions and to cause and to wreak havoc in the church of the living God. And oftentimes it seems like we're not supposed to be, but it seems like we may be the most unexpected that Satan would show up. That we are the most naive that there are. And it comes to Satan's lies. Those of us who sit on a perch church pew, those of us who come into the four walls of a, the church. Now, I heard uh, this past Sunday, uh, I went to First Baptist in Dallas, Texas. They asked me to preach, but I declined, all right? Uh, and I lie from time to time, all right? <clears throat> I heard in the sermon Sunday that there's a big number of American Christians, I can't remember what the percentage was, but 
They said that their Christianity really consisted of attending church about one time a month. So for the majority of American Christians, that 12 times out of the year, uh, they sat under the preaching. Now that preaching could be real, or that preaching could be fake. And so nonetheless, whether it's real or whether it's fake, fake or phony... Twelve times a year, and you tell me if that's your, that's what you take into the gospel. Say, Ronnie, <clears throat> they, they, could be, they could be real Christians at, you know, at home and reading the Bible. I, I would argue the fact if you're not in God's house, you're probably not in God's Word. I don't have statistics other than 48 years of life. That's all I have on that. You see that they're in their mouth, that they, they proclaim to be a Christian, but their life doesn't look like Christians. Oftentimes these teachers that they're teaching, it sounds good, but the longer that you listen to it, it has a hollowness to it. It's what the Bible and what Jude refers to as apostate teachers. Apostate teaching, those that are uh, fallen away. And it seems as though that the Bible, that it often warns us that in the last days, that there is going to be a great falling away. In the last days, you need to beware of false teaching and false doctrine. You say, well, Ronnie, you know as well as I do that even when they were writing the New Testament, they said they were in the last days. Absolutely. Let me tell you something. We're in the last days of the last days now. Yeah, we've been in the last days for a long time, but we're now in the last days of the last days. Days And I believe that it should cause you, it should cause me to be even more on guard in our hearts and lives. And I believe that uh, you and I, that we can look around, that we can listen, that we can watch uh, TV, that we can read things on the internet, and that it is very abundantly clear, abundantly uh, plain in our lives that there are many apostate teachers, people that have fallen away Uh, from the sincerity, from the truthfulness of God's Word. So, that is the exact reason why that tonight that we open up God's Word and we have a book, a book of strong warning such as Jude. A strong warning in our life that we be aware as God's people, as people who fill the pew, even on a Wednesday night, that we are strongly and keenly aware of the teaching that we allow to come into, the, into our eyes, into our ears, into our minds, that we be keenly aware. Now, who is this Jude that we talk about? Now, uh, in the Word of God, there's probably over a half a dozen different men by the name of Jude. There's fairly seems to be a fairly common name during that era. Uh, Judah, the tribe of Judah, that it was a namesake that people would often uh, name a child after uh, Judah. There was someone by the name of Jude who was very prominent in the Maccabean uh, revolution that oftentimes children were were named uh, after. So it's you know, a very, very common name at that time. But there seems to be only a couple uh, that were associated uh, but with a man by the name of James. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, there was the Apostle Jude, 
the Apostle Jude. And then there was also Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I believe that it is reasonable for us to uh, look, at, look at this Jude and as he has penned these, this letter, if you read it over, uh, that he does not identify himself uh, as an apostle. And then later on in this book, uh, as we uh, look in, let's see, like 17 and 18 there, that he refers to the apostles, and then he speaks to them as being they, not we, but they. Though I believe that is self-evident in saying that this is not Jude the apostle. That I would concur, like I would say that you know, 90% of, of most uh, that we consider conservative uh, scholars would say that the author of this book, like James, that he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And so, here tonight, that this is a very, uh, very unique place in Scripture, uh, that we see the half-brother of Jesus Christ pinning uh, these words. Now, <clears throat> obviously, that gave him credibility among those in which he wrote to in that time. It gave him uh, that he, the fact that he was known probably by many people, and so being associated with Jesus. But in a lesser degree, but in a very substantial degree, he being the brother of James gave him significant credibility as that James, that he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, that he was, that he was a, a rock among the early church there. And so here now, looking at this full brother, uh, probably of James himself, that this person, that he, Jude, that he had the ear of those that he was writing to, that they were tuned in, they were keyed in, and I believe that they uh, knew expressly who he was from the beginning. Now, the time that this was written, that no specifics do we know, but most people would say that from 60 to 80 A.D., within that 20-year uh, window, that this book... Uh, was written. Nothing significant that would tie uh, it to a particular time, but most people would say, uh, probably every commentator that I read after this week, that it linked and said that either Jude, the writing of Jude was heavily influenced by the writing of 2 Peter, or the writing of 2 Peter was heavily influenced by the writer of Jude. But, but both of those, that they are, uh, you can see that they're tied closely together in the, in the idea and the thoughts and the burden of the heart of this writer. Now, as we, it's very clear in Scripture, and as we'll soon point out, uh, that he just makes it plain that he had originally uh, intended to write something that looked much different than what he produced. Uh, that he wanted to uh, write something that celebrated, uh, you know, celebrated the salvation that they had uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, but he, uh, obviously the Spirit of God moved him in such a way that that was not uh, the intent that he needed to have, but he had, this should be more of a, a letter of warning, uh, a letter of caution to the early church. Now, uh, myself, as I look at this letter... <clears throat> I kind of think, man, I wish that he would have really nailed down exactly, pinpointed exactly the, the issues, particular issues 
uh, that he was dealing with. But, you know, I know that it doesn't matter. But in the grand scheme, I think that it, it caused me to, to look back on it. It says that, that whatever, uh, whatever his issues in particular were, it, what they were in particular there, it really, it really doesn't matter to me today. Because my warning, what I hear, is that I am to be tuned in, keyed in, anchored in this book right here in front of me, all right? And when I'm keyed in, anchored in, rooted in this book right here, it doesn't matter what issue pops up around me, I'm going to know truth from error. And that's how it is. In our lives, that's why it's so important that your life and my life is anchored in the truth. And it really doesn't matter what the falsehood is. That we can perceive it and we can detect it because we know what truth is. We've probably all been exposed uh, to the illustration that when a, a, a bank teller, you know, they teach a bank teller how to detect a uh, counterfeit money, they don't show them a bunch of counterfeits. They teach them what the real thing looks like. And when you know what the real thing looks like, then a counterfeit is just like that. It's easy. And so that's why it's important for you and I that we know the real thing so that when the counterfeits come our way, that that we can detect them uh, as they come. But whatever... This, this apostasy looked like in particular. We see that the falling away from truth and, and to turning our back on truth, that it is of utmost and dire and serious consequence as he likens it to the fallen angels, as he likens it to the, to the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah that brought on the wrath of God. And so as we see people that have a turn their back upon truth, and ultimately, that is simply revealing that they have never been born again. That's what it's doing. And so that ushers in, that ushers in ultimately uh, the wrath of God in their life. And so there's for a little bit, uh, kind of get our, get our background and get our setting uh, for what's going on. And so in verse 1 and 2, we see that Jude, <clears throat> he gives the introduction uh, to what he has to say. It said, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now, Jude, as I talked about a little bit in his name, it's in essence, at the very root of it, it's the very same name as Judas. How ironic. How ironic as the ultimate example of apostasy is Judas himself. One who had truth and turned his back on truth. And now uh, this Jude, uh, that he takes on uh, this subject head on. And so I think it's kind of a neat thing how that uh, these two are contrary one to the other in Scripture. And I think it highlights how important truth really is. Now Jude, if only by uh, his family, would be widely Known, and so this is a very effective person to pen these words. Isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit of God knows exactly who to use at the right moment and at the right time to minister to a particular group 
of people. That only God knows how to do that. God's, perf- God's perfect timing, God's perfect person is, is an amazing thing when you think of uh, the ways of God. Now, uh, wanting no privilege, wanting uh, no, uh, you know, nobody to pay any special attention to him, you see that he did not play off the fact that he was the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't play off of the fact that he was the brother of the mighty leader of the church there in Jerusalem. But he himself, that you see that he was a humble person, just as James said about himself, that here Jude, that he references himself as being a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, he, rem- he must have remembered He must have remembered all those days of unbelief. Remember, go back into the Gospels and the fact that all of Jesus' family, that they rejected him, they scorned him, they made light of him, and then one day, one day, I believe after the crucifixion, that those old boys, after Jesus got up out of the grave, that his brothers, those who lived with him, those who mocked him, those who scorned him, that they came to believe who Jesus Christ was. And this man by the name of Jude, he knew that he didn't have anything to be proud of, but he was humbled by the fact that Jesus saved him. And that he, he didn't walk around, you know, strutting his stuff. But he walked around in humility, and I believe that he was broken by the fact of how that he had rejected Jesus for so long, and then that ultimately that he come to faith and repentance in him. Now he, he had un, unapologetic boldness, but yet he was humble as he presented the word of the Lord. So as he had fully and selfishly surrendered self, fully and selflessly surrendered himself to the master now. And now he's in contrast to these apostates who have risen up, who have lifted themselves up over the word of God and the son of God. And he says, I'm simply here as a servant, one who has surrendered to the lordship of Christ. You know what, I think that sometimes, you know, I've, I've kind of maybe tried to interpret it in my mind where, where Jude was at, but isn't it good for all of us from time to time to go back and remember where we were before we believed in that moment that God turned the light on in our lives and it makes us walk in humility when we do that. What a lesson to be learned by this half-brother of Jesus, this brother of the mighty James, the leader and first Baptist in Jerusalem, that he looked back. He looked back on the grace of God that had been bestowed upon him when he was a rejecter, when he despised the plan of God, and yet in God in His mercy and His grace that He came down, He reached down, and He turned the light on in His heart and life, and forever He was changed, and forever that He would be humbled by the amazing and wonderful grace of God. Now, what a full verse. Pretty plain here as to who He was writing to. He says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Woo! 
there's, that's pretty stout right there, my friends. You might want to take a highlighter and just put that all over your face when you read that. That's awesome. You see some things there that we all need to know. First of all, they were believers. They were believers. And now let me say this, as we come to, into this text, we see that these were believers that were in a mess. These were believers who found themselves in problems. These were believers who had trouble inside of the church. And you and I both know that there ain't no trouble like church trouble. Yeah. And you know, and that's where they found themselves at. And so, those that may be your history, that may be your story. You're, not, you're in good company. Every Christian generation has faced trouble and difficulty and heretical uh, teaching and people that, that blasphemed, you know, and just lived ungodly ways that were even there in the church of the, of the living God. So Christian people and churches have trouble. And I would say especially Christian people have trouble. Especially churches have trouble. So this church, this book is about Christians and they're dealing with heresy. It's really not written to the heretics and their heresy. It's written to the church and the heresy that is coming inside of the church. Now, theologically, this is a rich verse. As we see that we're sanctified, that we're preserved, that we are called. That's, that's shouting ground type stuff there. And there's a whole lot to be said even about that simple phrase there that we're called, we're loved, we're kept. The called says it's something that happened in the past. It's something that God did in the past that He called us to himself, that we've been sanctified. And some translation says that we are beloved in him. And that word is a word that means it happened in the past, but it has a right now application in our life, all right? That we are being sanctified and we're in God, that we are his beloved. And then that we are preserved, that we are kept, and we're not kept by our own selves, that friend, that we are kept and we are preserved in Jesus Christ, or some translations may say, by Jesus Christ, that see, that we are kept, our, our, our security in our salvation is not by the uh, good deeds and the works and the perseverance of Ronnie Stinson, my, my security, my salvation. In its eternal uh, security is anchored in the fact that Jesus Christ is holding me in his hand. That's it. That we are secure, preserved in Jesus Christ or in what Jesus Christ has done. Our security is in the cross, our security is in the resurrection. Not in what I've done or what you've done. Our security is by and for Jesus' sake. By and for Jesus' sake. You know, the more I think about the phrase eternal life, that nullifies the, even the slightest, the slightest thought that we can lose salvation. 
Because if you can lose eternal life, then it's not what? Eternal. Then it's not eternal. So isn't, doesn't that finish the argument one way or another? Absolutely. He gives unto us eternal life. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. See that he takes full responsibility for your salvation. That's good news, isn't it? <laughs> if, it if it was up to me, I told you the other day, the best 10 minutes I've ever had wouldn't secure my salvation. What about you? No. Take the best 10 you've ever had. No. But it's all Jesus Christ, God Himself. He has taken it into His own hand. Now, this calling... It's the active work of the Spirit. This love and sanctification is the work of the Father. And then our keeping is in the Son's hand. So I think that if I were you, I would make some note of that somewhere in my notes or in my Bible. So, when it gets crazy down there at the church house, remember that we're in good hands. Remember that you're in good hands and remember that it isn't depending, it really isn't depending upon the church. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son is taking care of all the heavy lifting and the eternal stuff. He, he, he left the little stuff to us and that way if we mess it up, it's really not any big deal in the grand scheme of things. But the heavy lifting and the eternal stuff, He takes care of Himself. Now, if you want something done right, what do you do? You do it yourself. God wanted it done right, and He did it Himself. He took care of your eternal destiny by Himself. And then He says, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. The only time in the New Testament, from what I read this week, that these three are linked together in, in, in the verse like they are here. only time in the New Testament right here. I wouldn't have thunk it. But that's what I read, and I think it's probably correct when I come to kind of retrace it in my mind. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So remember, writing to a church that's troubled, writing to a church in, in turmoil. So the church, is there in the midst of turmoil? Is there in the midst of turbulence? Is there in the midst of trouble? He said that we are to know and that we're to see and that we are to be encouraged by the multitude of blessings that Almighty God that He bestows upon us as His children. You know, when we think about it and the trouble that starts coming around in our lives and maybe the confusion that sometimes happens inside of a body of Christ, inside of the church and trouble, and we know the hurt and the heartache there. But He says when you compare it all, and when you put it all into perspective to the many blessings and the goodness of God and His love and His mercy and His peace that He freely and graciously bestows upon us in our life in the grand scheme of things, it's but a drop in the bucket when we compare it to the goodness of God in our life. And sometimes it's hard to keep our focus on that and to keep our eyes on that. And that's why the Holy Spirit that He directed them, these holy men of old to pen words like this so that we're in the midst of trouble, when we're in the valley, when we're in the darkness, when we can't see the sunshine, that we read words of encouragement like this and it helps us, helps us see what's real, helps us keep things in perspective in our life, that we, keep, that we will look over, look over the things in this life and we'll look above to what heaven has for us and what it's provided for us in our hearts and lives. So, do you think that 
these believers did and would need the mercy of God at this time in their life? Absolutely. And you see that as Jude pins this, that he's, he's pinning this as a blessing, that he's pinning this as the desire, he's pinning this as the prayer of his heart. So I believe if anyone needed God's compassion, if anybody needed God's grace and God's comfort at this time, it was this church. But let me tell you right now, whatever it is in your heart and life right now that has rocked your boat, that has rocked your world, that has turned it upside down tonight, that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who've put their faith and trust in Him, that we have a God that is full of abundant mercy and that He's not trying to hold it back and see what you can endure on your own, but He is able and that He is willing and that He is abundantly pouring out mercy into the life of His children so that in the midst of all those things that we'll see Him in it all. His mercy. Mercy unto you. And then he just builds on that. the same thought process. And then he goes on to say in peace as he talks about the calmness and the confidence that can come from total, only total reliance upon God. You see, if we rely upon their self, myself, yourself, ourselves, no peace will ever be found. Only when we anchor ourselves in what God is going to do. Trusting in Him, knowing at the end of the day He's the only one that can change the situation. And that's the only thing that will give peace in our life. Not trusting in ourselves, but totally, confidently trusting in God's ability to take care of our earthly circumstances. And then last, love. The believer's commentary called this God's super affection. That's pretty cool. God's super affection. You see, there's nothing like knowing that you are loved by God. Jude knew. You know, Jude loved these people. I can, I can tell you I love you, and I can mean that with all my heart and all sincerity because I do. But you know, that really, in the grand scheme of things, that's just a glimmer in the pan as you try to compare it to the vastness of God's love. The richness of God's love. The overwhelmingness of God's kind of love. His super affection. Isn't it amazing that God would take time to communicate His love. Now, what was His ultimate communication of love? Jesus. That was His ultimate communication of love. And wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been enough? But God knows that we are what but dust. I think Josh Hawkins said something about that Sunday night, didn't he? That we are but dust. And God doesn't treat you like number 4280 like I was at General Tire. God treats you like a person who is in need of love. And that God doesn't spare communicating that love to His people. And maybe tonight, maybe you, man, things have just wiped you off your feet. And you, does anybody in this world care? I can tell you one person above all other people who cares about you in your life. That ought to give us hope, that ought to give us consolation above anything else. Is knowing that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Sustainer, the Creator, 
the one who holds it in the palm of his hands, all of it. He loves you. Ronnie, you don't, you don't know. Yeah, I know. I know he loves you. Because he took time when he didn't have to to communicate his love. His love toward you and toward me. So, that's his introduction. Look in verse 3, the exhortation. The exhortation. Now, you hear the love of Jude now. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, Jude is like every other preacher that I know. That he would rather preach about the fun stuff out of the Bible. Huh? Yeah. Look, at, see David Gossam back there smiling like a possum. He knows that's true. Every preacher would rather get up and preach and be able to hoop and holler and shout and say hallelujah and amen and glory to God and all that stuff. Sure. Every preacher would rather do that. And that's, I believe that's what we see Jude, that that's what he had in mind. You know, some, some preachers can get away with preaching that because, you know, if you only preach once a week, you can scratch around and find something like that once a week. But if you get in and dig in and preach two or three times a week, you've got to preach the whole thing. Huh? Yeah. And so that's where Jude found himself at. You know, when you think about it, if it wasn't for Paul's correction. You wouldn't have but a smidgen of the New Testament. Say, Ron, I get tired of all this correction. Well, that's what the New Testament's made up of. You, you, you slash the Gospels out, and even in it, Jesus was correcting. But you slash the Gospels out, and what you have is a bunch of correction. Why? Because the church is constantly needing correcting. And you and I, we constantly need correcting. We don't like to think that. I don't like to think that. But, I don't, but there's not a time when I pick up this word that, that there isn't a sharp edge knocked off of my life. There isn't something that I'm taught every time I pick up this book. And so God is constantly correcting me. God is, if you're His child, He's going to be constantly correcting you even through the Word. So Jude, he knew that he couldn't do that. Of necessity, he knew it. And more importantly, he knew by the, the leading of the Holy Spirit of God that he had a divine change of plans. Are you up for God's divine change of plans? See that Jude could have went on his merry way and wrote what he intended to have written and it would have never forever been in this canon of Scripture that he would have forfeited his duty to the church and to his brothers and sisters in Christ and he had forfeited the blessing of God, I believe. But we see in this exhortation a very fervent, you see a very enthusiastic appeal and warning that was obviously very necessary. I believe they had to be encouraged they had to be encouraged to do the right things. We all need encouragement to do the right things. 
See, we don't need any encouragement to do the wrong thing. But we need encouragement to do the right things in our life. You know, oftentimes when people come into my office and want to talk about something, very seldom do they need me to tell them what they need to do. Most of the time, they need me to encourage them to do what they know they need to do. Is that right? And so that's how it is when we come together in God's house that we open up God's Word and it's not necessarily that we're being taught something new that night or that day, but we need to be encouraged to go and do what we know we need to do. And that's how it was with these people. I believe that he was just encouraging them. And he was telling them that they should earnestly contend for the faith. And it it stresses the need to defend the truth continually and vigorously. My goodness, it was true then. And it is especially true today that you and I as believers, you and I as Baptist people, that you and I as believers in this book right here, that we must fervently and vigorously defend the truth and embrace the truth of Scripture. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And I think that it's going to be more and more important as days go by that we earnestly contend for the faith. Now he's talking about faith. He's not talking about man's uh, capacity to believe. All right? Not man's capacity to believe, but as he's talking about us earnestly contending for the faith, he is talking about this body of truth that is contained here in this book here. It's what the apostles taught there in Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. It's what Paul wrote to Timothy about in 2 Timothy 2, 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall teach others also. It's the faithful truth of the Scripture of the living Lord. The Bible. That's the truth that's once delivered unto the saints. Once delivered, that's a term that means completed and accomplished. Some translations say once and for all. You see that God's revelation is not a a continuation that, that each generation gets a new revelation from God. You see that He has given us His revelation. Now, as time goes on, we may find new applications of God's Word, but God's revelation's right here. Once and for all. This isn't some sort of fairy tale, but it's a finality. It's in its completion here. God's Word. Now, nothing is newly given or added. As I said, we may... Find new ways to apply that in our lives, but the truth is not new. That's how that you and I can know that the Book of Mormon is hogwash. Because nothing's added. It's here. Somebody, you know, said, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. That's not original, but pretty cool, isn't it? 
If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And we need to remember that. You see, oftentimes that we see uh, leaders and preachers and teachers that come around the pack and they gather a pretty good following because they come up with new things that God has revealed to them. But whether it's the denomination or it's a church or whatever, new revelation must be rejected. He gave us one truth. maybe New applications, maybe. But He's given us one truth. So, we contend for this faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, as we close in verse 4 with the situation. I know I've unloaded a lot on you, but y'all are doing really well. Absence has made the heart grow fonder, as my mother would say. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives the situation that he's really addressing here. No, because there were those who are like these stealth fighter planes. They're flying in under the radar. You see, and that's what Satan does, that he's always developing something new in order to fly under the radar. And this church had had some that had gotten in and that they had gotten under the radar. And, you know, I think that today that we are particularly at risk here because of the media that we have access to today. That you, can, you and I can get on our phones, we can get online, and we can, we can get all sorts of religious commentary about anything. And that sometimes we think if, if we've read it on the, that there internet, it must be true. No! No! We need to make sure that what we're reading and what we're hearing, that it is truth, that there, there is a gazillion different podcasts, sermons that you can listen to, men who put their stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of money, it doesn't take a sophisticated uh, you know, sound system, recording equipment, or any of those things. Any Joe Blow can do it sitting in his living room and you know, make it sound like it is a professional publication and all these sorts of things, and he has no idea what he is talking about. We have things being posted on whether it be Facebook or whether it be, you know, Twitter or whatever, any of these things that have people who have massive followings. And people follow that stuff hook, line, and sinker like it is the gospel. And friend, it is filled with error. Books, books being published. If they will sell, they will get printed. You hear me? It doesn't matter if they're true. If they'll sell, they'll be printed. This past week, on some of the Christian news that I have that comes in on my phone, uh, has the guy who uh, wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Probably heard that book. I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it's a real popular book, probably 10 years ago, I don't know. And Man, it was just you know, just wreaking havoc in, in what, what most people had considered the norm and 
people were just you know loving it and following it and now today that pastor he's uh, since uh, left his church he's left his wife uh, I believe Mel said he's prefers the same sex maybe now and that he has uh, let's see what else anyhow you get the picture you see it really doesn't matter if you've written a book or you've got a podcast or you have a great following on social media none of those things none of those things mean that you're walking with the Lord none of those things mean that you know what truth is so I encourage you to be very very discriminating in who you read very discriminating on who you listen to very discriminating on the people that you follow because that because of their popularity has no indication that they're a lover of Jesus Christ or not now he says that these people they creep in unaware so Ronnie they were oh, did you not read unaware Satan's like a stealth bomber He's slick, slicker than a grease pig. We better not forget that. It's a call to remember that Satan's scared. He's very stealthy in what he does. Now he says these were before of old ordained to this destruction. Now Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, uh, some of the minor prophets that they foretold the fact that these people were going to be uh, busy, there was going to be false teachers, there were going to be empty teachers, like uh, clouds without water, that sort of thing, and they were going to be coming on the scene. Ordained to destruction. Now some people say, well, that, you know, that means you know, just as some people are, uh, you know, they're predestined to heaven, these people are predestined to destruction in hell. The Bible never teaches that people are predetermined or, or headed, you know, before they're ever born, destined for hell never never teaches that but here we see that the bible is clear that the end of the lives of ungodly men is destruction the bible always teaches that ultimately that men are lost that men are damned because of their unbelief because of their disobedience because of their sin that's always the case now there's stout part on the end of this verse here he says they're ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ MacArthur said he talks about their character he talks about their conduct and he talks about their creed and he does that right here their conduct that they are ungodly Talking about their corrupt people and who they are. It's their, what's inside of them. All right? And then what happens? It talks about their conduct. They turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness, pervert Christian freedom. They pervert it into something that God never intended for it to be, and they they embrace it and make it as a right for their sin. A right for their sin. And then, lastly, that he says that they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
They deny the essential, gospel, the essential doctrines of the Scripture and they elevate, they elevate their own ideas to the same level and to the same authority as the Word of God. And that, unfortunately, that we as human beings, that we can often find ourselves in situations where that we become so taken in by leaders and their charisma and their ability to draw us in to, to their, their thoughts and their ways. That we take what they have to say just at face value. We take what they have to say without ever running it through our filters that we have that God has put in place in our life. And so it calls, call, it's a call for us as believers that we know the Word of God and that we embrace it and take it in. We don't, you know, we, we can set into a church service and we can hear, we can hear the Word of God without ever taking it into our lives, right? Like sitting in science class and that teacher is spouting off all that stuff and you're, you're sitting there, you're hearing all the information. But it, when it comes test time, that tells you what you took in, doesn't it? Well, this life's full of test times. So may God help us in our life that we love truth, we take truth in, we know truth, and that we reject falsehood. Reject it because it's deadly the devil's most evil scheme to bring falsehood into the church. And it was bad then. They were in the last days. But I believe it's really bad now because we're in the last of the last days. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments tonight. And God, I pray that you quicken our hearts to truth. And God, that we'd be loved.